Good morning to you. Well, I'm really excited this morning. We have a very, very special uh, surprise for you. Uh, I, we've just come off of a, of a great weekend at our men's retreat up in the mountains. And so Dr. Ergon Kanner has been there and has been uh, speaking to us throughout the weekend. And so, so we just thought it'd be a great surprise uh, that if we could get him here, and we have, and then to ask him to speak and preach at these three services. And so in just a few minutes, I'll introduce him. I'm going to be very brief because I don't want to take up any more of his time than I have to. Uh, but I just want to welcome you, whether you're in this room. I mean, we're a packed room in here, packed room over there in the theater. And so we just want to welcome you here, and we want to welcome uh, Dr. Kenner as well. Dr. Kenner is a friend. Uh, he served along with Pastor Chad, Pastor Corey, and so he's a deep friend. He was here in, in 2010. And uh, out of all the people that we've had come and speak here, um, we, we just, no one has, has touched you guys quite like Dr. Kenner has. And Dr. Kenner is Vice President of Academic Affairs Provost at Arlington, Arlington Baptist College, which is in Dallas, Texas. So uh, Dr. Kenner, why don't you come and why don't you guys welcome uh, Ergon Kenner. Look, there are, um, there are moments in your life where you usually get caught and you go, okay, this is cool. I get to be part of something like this. Um, our school is about six miles from Cowboy Stadium. And I've, since the last time I was here, I was actually living in Virginia when I was here last and got called out to Texas at Arlington Baptist College. And so uh, my wife got us a ranch with land and animals. I've never farmed. I've never mowed. <laughs> but at the school, we're six miles from Cowboy Stadium, and, and we went out there for an event. And I'm standing on the star going, hate the Cowboys, but uh, this is pretty cool. My youngest loves the Cowboys. So. When you feel like you're out of place, when you feel like you're overwhelmed, when you feel like you're, you're humbled in a real sense where you're like, this is cool. I'm glad I get to be a part of it. Welcome to this weekend. We went out to Horn Creek. The last time I was here, I brought Drake, my youngest son. This time I brought Drake as well. There are men in your church who kill and eat every day. I have never been around so much testosterone in my life. I have never felt like so much of a man and so much of a pansy at the same moment. Because, uh, I mean, this is good eating. Well, you ever killed anything? I'm going to say no. We're going to go kill something, eat it. I'd love to watch. I can shoot. Explain what that means in a minute. You want to talk about being out of place? My son, who's now nine, he played with all of your guys because they're real men. Doesn't bother me that I'm not. <laughs> Doesn't bother me that some of the young guys he was playing with were in skin tight shirts, skinny jeans. I saw one of the boys, and I said, it looks like a ballerina somewhere is shivering because you're wearing her outfit. 
Is that, does, that, does that shirt button between the legs? <laughs> I'm 45, 46. I'm now 47 years old. I'm not wearing skinny jeans. They don't make skinny jeans in a 42 waist. And I'm wearing Spanx so this vest doesn't pop. And if I could, I'd wear pajama jeans because they look really comfortable. But I got to hang out with that this weekend. You wonder how blessed I am? 17 years ago, I got to hang out with Chad and, and Corey. Corey was such a Pied Piper with students that we had, we immediately went to one of the largest churches, uh, largest youth groups in the entire city. And the, the, I just got to watch as God used them. And, and Chad literally grabbed our church and shifted us into a worship church. And I got to just watch that. I find, I find myself in places where I don't fit. I have the most amazing life, and I get to do these things. If, if you'd have known that it was a professor coming, you wouldn't have come. I wouldn't either. I've heard my people, you know. We, what a joy, what an honor, what an absolute privilege. This morning I shall preach on the five ways to prove the existence of God using rational reason, logical coherence, cosmological ontological, moral, experiential, teleological. It all works together as we... And, and you're just going, I'm going to drink Clorox and die. <laughs> if I further told you that I'm an immigrant, I wouldn't come. Neither would you. Turkish, immigrant, Yankee. That is three strikes. I was born in Stockholm, Sweden, 100% Turk. And oh, by the way, raised as a Muslim. Got saved going into college. But come on, there's a lot of us now. The, the numbers are somewhere in the vicinity of 25,000 in America. 25,000 Muslim men are coming to faith in Christ every year. That's glorious. And, and even when we, amen, amen. But even when, we, even when we speak in our churches, you know, it isn't always electric. <laughs> this is a spoon from my country. Please pass this around. Yeah. <laughs> I get to do this. I was a youth pastor and I was horrible at it. Stunk. I was a pastor and even worse. I'm a professor and I love my life. I'm a grump. I'm a grump. There's not a lot of us. There's some in this room, I promise you. Nobody ever represents us. But it's what made me a horrible pastor. In little country churches where they would call me, I, after the service, you have to go to the back door, shake hands. And I would do the secret preacher handshake because I'm a grump. You take the hand with the right and the elbow with the left, and you pull. <laughs> just, do you know why? Because you guys want to talk. And I'm hungry. And I would stand at that door. Hey, will you baptize my goat? Nope. Bah, like this. When I did youth, they'd call me at 4 a.m. in the morning. I'm asleep. I'm a grump. Let me explain what a grump means. I love everybody because I'm saved. I just don't like most people, which includes me. So if I don't like me, how much more do you think I'll like you? But you can't say that when you're a pastor. You have to bless your heart. I'm so happy you're here. But because God didn't give me the gift of the shepherd, I didn't have the gift of mercy, and so when somebody would come up in the sound, you know, I don't know how you guys ever deal with it, but 
they'd come up and, oh, pastor, we are praying about leaving the church. And a pastor will pray with them and talk with them. And I just went, leave. What do I possibly care? Go infect another church. I'll, I'll call them and tell them you're coming. How about that? Well, I'm not a morning person. If you're a grump, you ain't coming to the 9 o'clock hour. I'm barely coherent at 9 o'clock. You see, some of you are happy morning people. I get to do 11 weeks of camps. I get to speak 48 weeks a year because it's part of what I do. It's, you know, it gets people to know the school or know your ministry or what you teach. And so I get to do this. I get to hang out with your students through the week. I get to teach. I got to do administration, which I, I don't even know how to spell administration, much less do it, but I have to do it so I can teach. And then on weekends, I get to do this. And, I, and I, I, in the summers, I'll do these camps. And you who are the morning people, you're up at 5 a.m. Happy. And if that's you, if that's the way God's blessed you, that's awesome. Keep it to yourself. Because <laughs> all y'all who are up early, you're really proud of the fact that you're up early. And you're the one at the camp going, come on, everybody, let's get up. Oh, my God. Everybody saying, rise and shine and give God. I will punch you in the throat. I'll kick you with the shoe. I, I won't even repent for it later. I promise you. <laughs> the kids would call at 3 o'clock. Oh. It was a no, no offense to the girls, but it would be girls. Going, he broke up with me. He broke up. Why would he break up with me? Because you called him at 3 o'clock in the morning. <laughs> By the way, the boys would call at 4. There's a big difference that the guys don't know. I'll hopefully unpack that for you, but... They'd call. What am I supposed to do, man? She broke my heart. Get some sleep. <laughs> no, man, seriously, what am I going to do? I just, uh, date her best friend. I don't care. Uh, <laughs> it works. <laughs> Gentlemen, if you're single, let me explain this to you. This is the only thing I ever learned in youth ministry, my entire life in youth ministry. When a girl breaks up, she has some sort of conch or a trumpet or a shofar. And I don't know what it is. I've never heard it, actually. But they, they blow something, and they summon their friends from the four winds. <laughs> and she will sit in the, on the floor, and they will surround her. And sitting in a circle, they'll eat haagen <laughs> And they will talk about you till morning. They, they, will base, they will dog you for like eight hours. And when the sun rises, she's over you. As guys... We act like it don't hurt. Spend two weeks denying that we're in pain and until somebody finds us in a tree with a BB gun shooting squirrels and cursing our life. No, she never leave me. These guys. So I didn't work out. I get to hang out. I get to do this. But the profundity of that moment is simple. I'm in different denominations and different churches and in different states. And my oldest son, Braxton, has, has been to 41 states with me and Drake has now just gotten his, his, his 24th, and I love that. But what we just experienced, you almost never get to see that. If I can have four Sundays in a year where I can sense the presence of God so heavy in a room that you almost don't want to do or say anything 
because you're aware of the holiness of God. You're aware that he is just there and that he loves you. And of all the places I don't fit, when they're singing high church music or using handbells or it's a different language or it's a different thing, I can say that in just about every place until you, I come here and look around. I am a, I'm a Turk. I'm Anatolian. We darken in the summer. We lighten in the winter. My wife is white, translucent white, <laughs> mayonnaise white. When we go out into the sun, I'm using Pam. She's got like SPF 8 million, which is a spackle. So I can say this. Most of the churches I'm in, lily white. Y'all look like a bowl of Skittles. This may be one of the first places I've ever fit. Because with this beard, trust me, I get searched on every plane. When you fit and when you feel like you're welcome and when you feel like God's here, you actually feel open enough to let God do something. I don't want to offend you. I might. I don't mean to, but I'm, I'm somewhat akin to the a bull in a china shop. Sometimes I knock things over on accident. As I told you, I don't fit in most places. I am a Turk, a Yankee. Raised as a Muslim, I married a girl who was Baptist nine months before she was born, whose mother has bulletins signed by Elijah in her Bible. They are old school Baptist. I knew nothing about this. My wife can fix anything. I'm useless. If you ever see me under a car, I've been hit. She's skinny. I'm a biggin. She's smart. I, I w- nobody was more surprised at my degrees than me. She has her degrees in raw food cooking, nutritional science. Last Friday, I took my sons to the Texas State Fair because they had deep-fried peanut butter jelly and banana sandwiches which will be served at the marriage supper of the Lamb in the Bible. (laughs) Say it softly. It's almost like a prayer. (laughs) Deep-fried jambalaya balls. Deep-fried Thanksgiving dinner. But when I got to the deep-fried M&Ms, I had one of deep-fried M&Ms, deep-fried butter. My blood stopped moving. It was holy. And my wife, I can't believe you're eating that stuff. I just remind her whenever a jogger is hit by a car, it's a fat guy who hit him. We just didn't see you because we were leaning over getting a Krispy Kreme while you... My bad. How's that leg? My boys will go with me at the camps, and they, I'm 47. They still have me at camps. I'm happy. I'm, I, I can't believe they let me do this, but they do. But it's the boys. Braxton will say, uh, Papa, don't ever wear that again. Um, don't say it that way. Don't make that reference. They don't know what you're talking about. And it's because of them that I tell you if I offend you, uh, I want to give you a means to take it directly to me. If you all got that slide, I am addicted to Twitter. I am. Braxton, however, got me on Instagram. I didn't even know what that was till this year. 
I even asked Braxton, why are you not doing Facebook? And he said, we, we're getting off of Facebook. Why? Because moms are on Facebook. <laughs> and I was like, why? What are you talking about? He goes, no, stay-at-home moms have taken over Facebook. If you don't believe me, go on there. You used to be able to put up pictures. Now you got to take a quiz. Somebody tags you in an 8,000-word note about their dead stupid cat. I, I don't farm in real life. Do you really think I want to do Farmville on, on my computer? Well, Braxton said, I don't do it because mom stalks. And I, I said, no, she doesn't. And sure enough, there was on his Facebook. It was like, I love you. You're my sweetie. Here's the verse we were reading. Hope you wore clean underwear. I do the same thing, except I don't do the words. I, he told me to stop tagging him in pictures. Because I would be like, here's, a, here's, here's you, son, when you were four. Sorry, you're naked. <laughs> So why aren't you on Twitter? And he said, um, Twitter is where dads fight, which is true. You want to know how blessed I am? Your pastor was our leader. And I'm sure you guys know it. He doesn't like talking about it, but he's a national leader and a state leader. And he was like, he was, that's Charlie. And now I get to tweet with the guy, which makes me feel popular because he's popular. <laughs> but Braxton doesn't care about that. He's on Instagram. And how many here are on Instagram? For those of you who don't know what it is, it's Twitter for illiterate people. No words, pictures. And because of Instagram, I have now seen some of the most beautiful bathroom mirrors in all of America. <laughs> because five, six years ago, it was Facebook, and every kid would take a picture of what I refer to as the Caucasian gangster pose. They would hold the camera up here and just <laughs> throw it down like that. You know what they do now? They get in the mirror right before they go to school and hold it up and take the picture. Truck fit, tight shirt. Wayne bathroom. So I'm doing it too, but my bathroom's not pretty. And my shirts don't fit. But I get to do it. You guys go to me. I don't mean to offend, but if I do, it's because I'm a born-again believer in Jesus who feels like he was lied to for half of his life. We live in a culture that says everybody's the same. All religions, all beliefs, all people groups. And then what they want us to do is basically just say, well, you know, it doesn't matter how you get to God as long as you're getting to God. And it's like getting to Chicago. It doesn't matter if you fly or drive or boat. As long as you get there. And they want us to all join arms and light a candle and sing the Coca-Cola theme song. And they, and they want us to, to almost um, excuse truth on the altar of peace. And I'm, I'm here to tell you one thing. There's no singing in the mosque. Do you know why it means so much to me that, that, I'm part, that I get to see a worship service, get to participate in a place where tears are flowing and hands are raised and people are bowing before a righteous God? Because there's no singing in the mosque. I teach global apologetics, world religions, Near Eastern, Middle Eastern, Far Eastern, Western and New, Hinduism, Buddhism, Yainism, Sikhism, uh, Taoism, Confucianism, uh, Shintoism, Falun Gong, Jutja, Islam, uh, modern Judaism, all these religions, Zoroastrianism, Baha'i, everybody's religious. But there's no singing in the mosque. When I was a senior in high school and I walked into a little bitty, tiny little church to shut one boy up who just wouldn't leave me alone. I could handle the sermon because we have a mimbat in the mosque and you can hear a sermon. I could handle people shaking your hands because this is hospitality. I couldn't figure out why you people were so happy. Sunni. Shia, Sufi, Wahhabi, Alawit, Druze. There's no singing in the mosque. Only three religions sing. 
And by the way, Christianity is not a religion. You want to know why? Because those that do sing, they do so because of religion. My students get tired of hearing me say it. See, religion is a set of rules and rituals and rites and things that you do to get your God to love you or get your God to quit hating. And you may have one God. You may have uh, 330 million gods. But what they do if they dance, what they do if they sing, what they do when they lay things at an altar, when they light the incense, when they give the money, they do this so that the tsunami stops, so that the volcano stops erupting. Christianity, we are the only people who sing not to get something, but, be- but because we've already received You don't sing to get something from God. You sing out of gratitude because you've already been healed. There's an equanimity there. Christianity is not a religion. Even good people will ask me, oh, so you were Muslim, yeah, now you're a Christian, uh-huh. When did you switch? I didn't switch. I got saved. I didn't go from one religion to another or one set of rules or one set of books or one set of language. I went from worshiping a false dead idol Jesus is the way and the truth and the life. And when you come to the Father, the profundity is not lost. And it would be racist if we said, Christianity is true and everybody else is false. Enjoy hell. (laughs) But the Bible is clear. Jesus died for the world. He wants a relationship with every beating heart, with every burdened shoulder, with every person who's beat up and broken. And that's where we sing. It's a tragedy, but most of the churches I ever walk into, and most of the churches you and I both know, they don't sing like worship. They sing because it's in the bulletin, or it's expected. When was the last time something happened in your life that was spontaneous? Where God so profoundly impacted you that, that the burdens you face and the things that you walked in with don't feel as heavy? Everybody's got problems. Everybody has issues. Christians aren't you know, immune to issues of life. Job said, man who's born of woman is full of years and full of trouble, or a few years and full of trouble, and we got them just as much as anybody else. But when God shakes you, rocks you, in such a way that it changes you, the movement of the Holy Spirit in your life, the power of God in your heart, church is supposed to be like that. I hope you appreciate what you have. Because there's so many hurting people who don't get this. They come in and they think that the best they can hope for is status quo. I want to show you what church is supposed to be. Luke 17. This ain't hard and this isn't profound. Pastor, what time am I supposed to be done? Three o'clock, he said. <laughs> I couldn't stand to hear me that long. Are you serious? Luke 17, beginning in verse 11. While Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem, he was passing between Samaria and Galilee. Now, as he entered a village, ten leprous men stood at a distance to meet him. They raised up their voices and they said, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. When he saw them, Jesus said to him, go, get up and go and, and, and show yourselves to the priests. And as they were going, as they were going, they were cleansed. Now one of them, when he saw that he had been healed, he turned back, turned around, 
glorifying God with a loud voice. And, and he fell on his face at Jesus' feet, giving thanks to him. He was a Samaritan. And Jesus answered and said to him, wasn't there ten lepers cleansed? What, what happened? What, huh? The nine, where are they? Was no one found to return to give glory to God except for this foreigner? Final verse, God bless you. Final verse. He said to him, the one who returned, stand up, go. Your faith has made you well. That's supposed to be church. On our faces before God, healed, fixed. I've been saved for 30 years. There are some dry spells in my life. I don't want dry spells. The one thing about Twitter that we often joke about is that nobody's really honest, especially not preachers, because we'll always tweet, what a joy, what a wonderful service we had. What a warm fellowship. Nobody ever goes, that was horrible. I have heard sermons that I have fallen asleep to that I was preaching. You can't tell me that I'm alone. You want God to do something electric, profound, You want something that is a seismic shift. It's not magic. It's not God picking some arbitrarily and avoiding others. It's not God playing duck-duck-goose. It's simple, which is the only way I understand it. Getting to be here around men who are heroes, they set the standard. Even when they mispronounce the word theater, And say theater. Because that's just like my wife. But I ain't got nothing fancy to bring to you. I want to show you in the life of one leper. How God can relieve the burden on your shoulders. And and you can actually live the life that we always pray about having. See God do what we always wonder. Is he going to do it? But to do it, it demands three decisions. Simple. But they're profound. Number one, if you want God to do something real and deep and and lasting in your life, it demands that you go where you have never gone. Please notice what Jesus did. We often skip over it because it's setting the stage, but it says Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem and he goes between Samaria and Galilee. His feet touch Samaritan soil. Here's the problem. It's not just lepers. It's where he was standing. The Samaritans were hated. They were hated people because they were half-breeds. When the Assyrians took over 700 years before Christ, they killed a whole bunch of people, took some captive, but they left the young girls. The reason they left the young girls is that they would force them then to marry the Assyrian men. And so the godly girls married to the pagan men would produce offspring that were half-breeds. In the days of Jesus, now 700 years later, the Samaritans were hated. They were a reminder of their former captivity, a reminder of their slavery. Jews, if they were on their way to the Holy Land, if they were on their way for the high holy days, they wouldn't even let their foot touch Samaritan soil. If they did, they would have to go through the cleansing again, through the mikvat. You don't touch Samaritan soil. You certainly don't touch Samaritan people. But guess what? Here's why I'm not religious. I'm a follower of Jesus. Because Jesus made it his work to go where nobody else would go 
and touch those that nobody else would touch. He was on Samaritan soil. And by the way, he walks into a city and from afar off, we're introduced to lepers. There's 61 diseases in the Old Testament. The only thing worse than leprosy is death. It's considered the worst. It's the black plague. If you were a leper, you had to stay 20 yards away from anybody. If you were walking into a town, one who was clean, who had been declared clean and worked with the lepers, would have to carry a lantern and walking in front of the lepers scream, unclean, and people would spread. They were outcasts. And there we find Jesus. If you want to know how Jesus works with the leper, if you want to know how he heals and why this boy falls at his feet, Mark it in your margin or or write it down to read some other time. Matthew chapter 8. Here was Jesus' method. When a leper would approach him, have mercy on us. It's explicit in the text. He touched them. He would touch them. The moment you were declared a leper, nobody touches you again. There's no idea how many years this guy has been living this way. Maybe one year, maybe ten years. But imagine nobody hugs you. Nobody holds your hand. Nobody loves on you. Nobody touches your face. He had lost the sense of being part of any community. Nobody would touch him. You're the nasty one. You're the one who might infect us. Get away from us. And there's Jesus. And he touches him. How electric. For the first time in his life, he's touched. That's why I love the humor of our Lord. Notice what he says to the lepers when they go, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. Yeah, I'm here with you, but why don't you get up and start running toward the priest? How'd you like to be that priest? Uh, Hello there, leper. Hey, back up. One of the things I have a problem with in church is that everybody's got crazy members. Nobody ever talks about them. And I'll make you a promise. Fellowship of the Rockies, you got a lot of crazy people. Because the better the church, the more crazies. It's a spiritual concept right in the front of your Bible. The brighter the light, the more bugs. <laughs> you know how you spot a crazy person? They really have no space issues. When they come up to talk to you, it's like this. Could you imagine being that priest? Stop. Hey, by the way, I'm not being offensive about the crazy people. Right now, you're thinking about the crazy people in the church. You're thinking about the person that you see him walking down the aisle. You're going to duck into a class. And if you're not thinking about him, it's you. <laughs> Somebody, somebody's thinking about you right now. Remember when it was fresh? Remember when you, you felt the touch of Jesus? Remember when it was so real, it was so existential, so experiential? It was, it was like, man, God is here. I'm forgiven. I lived by scales. Islam teaches in the 23rd chapter of the Quran that you have to live by scales. And for the first time in my life, I found out that he got on a cross because I couldn't do enough to be good enough to make it. He loved me enough to die for me. I don't live by scales. I live by the cross. That's why I learned how to sing. People who don't sing have nothing to sing about. Worship is the barometer, but I'm not getting ahead of myself. Go where you've never gone, too. It demands that you do what you've never done. you got to shake yourself out of your rut. 
You want to see the difference? When the boy is just one of the ten, he's standing back here with the rest of them at a distance, and he's yelling, Jesus, Master. The word for yelling right there, phone That's where we get our word for phone. It's not what he does after he's healed. Notice, when he saw that he'd been healed in verse 15, he turned back, and what does he do? He's glorifying God with a loud voice, fell on his face at the very feet of Jesus, giving thanks. You want to see worship in one sentence? Glorifying God, doxa, except it's with a loud voice. The word in the Greek, megadoxa, doxology. It's thank you, God, for who you are. And then it says, giving thanks, with glorifying God with a loud voice, and he fell on his face. This is a position of worship. Now, when I first came to a Baptist church, some of you guys may not be from the Baptist background, but they are very stringent on how they worship. Stand, sit, turn around, hug a neck, kiss a baby, like Jesus size. You're always doing something. <laughs> it's like this. When was the last time you hit an altar and you had the sense that I'm at the feet of Jesus? How could he get so close? Who are you? Who are you to get so close to Jesus? I'll tell you who you are. If you're born again, you're a child of the king. I got saved. I didn't get saved just to be forgiven. I'm not just somebody who's uh, promised heaven. I am a child of the eternal father. So are you. That's why the Bible says we come boldly before the throne of grace to obtain mercy in a time of need. Well, I got a time of need. Who am I to come boldly? I didn't earn it. I don't deserve it. But I'm his child. I can't believe he loves me. Write it down, mark it, because some of us live on this treadmill of trying to earn his love. There is nothing you can do to make God love you any less. And there's nothing you can do to get him to love you more. He loves you. That's why you have access. That's why he lifts your burden. You're going to have to demand of yourself, I'm, I've got to get out of this run. I've got to stop doing these things. I'm going to be like the leper who's been healed. I'm going to go I haven't gone in a long time, and, and I've got to do what I've not done in a long time. And you begin to see the wisdom of following God with abandonment, a radical commitment that just goes beyond. Let me illustrate from my stupidity. I didn't get married until I was almost 30. I didn't want to get married. I liked being single. And all my buddies who got married at 18 and 19 didn't look happy. They were all happy until they got married. And then they're like, dude, you want to hang out? Go home. No, that's fine. She's just yelling at me. Well, I'll yell at you too. Go home. I meet Jill January the 7th, 1993. Look, I know how preachers talk about their wives. My wife is the greatest Christian I know, but my wife is hot. <laughs> hot. And I will raise my hands like the ceiling can't hold me because I wanted that girl. We got engaged October the 23rd, 1993. All of a sudden, my whole life changes. This beautiful little girl wants to be married to me. I got the ring. I proposed on a Saturday. But I was the pastor of the church where we had met. And that church, by the way, all her family. Welcome to the South. And to use their word, we're all kin. I didn't want her holding the ring because I thought it would distract. 
I'm an idiot. So I said, put it in your pocket. By the way, there was a rumor in the church that I was leaving because there was something called a pulpit committee that had visited. It doesn't matter what a pulpit committee is, but if you've never heard of it, there are people who show up from another church to snipe your preacher. And they think they're smooth. They show up in the same bus, sometimes with the name of the church on the side of it. And what, 11, 15 of them get out, sit in different sections of the sanctuary like they don't know each other, listen to the sermon, and then leave in the same bus. So there was a room. I wanted to have fun with this because, again, I'm not a real good pastor, so I might as well have fun while I'm doing it. After the service, I said, please be seated. And if you're old school in a church and the pastor says this after the invitation, something's up. And I reached into my pocket and grabbed a piece of paper. Again, if you're old school, he's going to resign. He's going to read it because he'll start crying if he doesn't. Well, there was nothing on it. It was blank. But it was fun to watch their faces. <laughs> and I said, I heard there's a rumor that I'm leaving, and, and why would I leave? This is the only church that's ever called me as pastor. There's only been two churches that could ever stand me. And one of them was, I think they stood me because I had Corey and Chad. I said, why would I leave? This is, this is the church that called me. You guys... This is where my grandmother got saved. This, this is where I want to be buried. And this is where I fell in love, and this is where I'm going to be married because last night Jill and I got engaged, and we're going to be married in August of next year. Anything I said after the word married, nobody heard. <laughs> because every woman in that church who, by the way, is either related or distantly related to my wife, every single one of them went, Love Jesus! and jumped up and run to the back to see the ring. And begin to ask intrusive questions. Where'd you get it? Where'd you get it? It's real pretty. I'm not telling you that. Finger hut. <laughs> got a Pittsburgh Steelers throw with it. For the next eight months, they all start talking. They all talk about the wedding. They talk about where we're going to live. We're going to fix the parsonage up. We're going to do all these things. Nobody talked to me. There's no advice for the groom. There's tons of bride magazines. There's no groom magazines. And half the Christian books about marriage lie. Not on purpose, but they're written by older people who have forgotten. In 55 years, we have never fought. You're lying. Or you're on Xanax. <laughs> the only thing I got were a couple of deacons coming up going, so you're going to do it, huh? Yeah. Yeah, it's not funny. <laughs> so I had to learn by watching other people and write it down. And I'm marrying a southern girl. Look at this mixed marriage. She's skinny. I'm fat. She's younger than me. I'm bald. She's got hair. She's smart. I'm stupid. She's exercise fiend. I'd like to lay on the couch for 18 hours at a time. And, and I don't know how this is going to work. We go out a month after we're married. We go out with Scott and Cindy Jones, friends of ours to this day. They're our age. And Scott's going to teach me how to be a man because he grilled meat. I can't hunt it. Don't know how to skin it. I don't know why you fish. There's an Albertsons five minutes away. Go to King Supers. The meat's already cut up. But I was going to learn, and he was going to teach me. So he's got grill going, and then he gets his wife, Cindy, to make sweet tea. I'm a Yankee. We don't know what sweet tea is. And I hate it. You go to a restaurant, and you go, you got sweet tea? There's some sweetener on the table. You want me to fix my food, too? Sweeten it. Southerners sweeten tea till it's so thick, its viscosity is like 1040 weight. 
It's, it's, oh, it's ambrosia. <laughs> Scott's telling me a story, and he's got his tea. I'm sitting here. Scott's there. Jill's here. Cindy's there. Scott's drinking his tea, telling me a story, and I'm in, just, and he finishes his tea. And what's about to happen changed me. Without taking his eyes off of me, without stopping his story, he picks up his glass. He shook the ice. Cindy got up, (laughs) went to the counter, got the pitcher, poured the tea, and he kept telling the story. Didn't even break. I didn't hear a word he's saying. Because I'm staring at his tea. So I pick up my glass. There are men getting elbowed right now at this moment. I got it to it right here. Before I could shake it, Jill went, I will kill you. Don't shake the ice. <laughs> Got it. One time I was on the phone, and for the young ones, this is the 90s. The phone had a cord. It was attached to the wall, and I couldn't get to the pen so I could write something down. And I literally went, woman. I almost ended up on an episode of Cops. That night. She went, did you come... See, my wife's not just Southern, she's country. Some of you women, you are Southern, but you're not country. And other you are country, but you're not from the South. Watch. You can make a Southern woman cry. A country girl will kill you. If you cross the line, I don't care what state she's from, she ends up like Snooky. She's taking earrings out. She's gonna, she will stab you in your sleep. And it's sort of hot to be scared of your wife. Nobody helped me. And, oh. We've been married almost 20 years. Every morning I wake up, I, I'll give you a great secret of being married. I apologize by prophecy. I am sorry for what I am about to do. Because I wake up and I go, How, why are you still here? If she left me, I'd go with her. I know, I know what I am. This ain't pretty. And by the way, ladies, all you single ones, the moment you bring him down the aisle, when you've scrubbed him and cleaned him up, Remember this principle. That's as good as it ever gets. It is downhill from there. And when she wakes up six months later and your beard looks like a schnauzer and your breath is like somebody stuffed a cat in it and, and, and she sees you cleaning your ears with your keys and, and you're picking a Cheeto out of your belly button that got stuck there two weeks earlier and she looks at you and still loves you, that's God. I'm a leper. When he got healed, that's why he ran back. That's where worship comes from. It brings us to our final point. Shut up and go away. You want God to radically rock you and change you and and shake you and do something that is so profoundly godlike that it can't be explained by man's manipulation or our plans or our programming, that that it's spontaneous and it's Holy Spirit anointed and it has the power of God and the peace of God simultaneously. It's not just about doing the backflip. It's that I, I get before the face of God and I don't just get knowledge, I get wisdom. I'm a PhD. 
And I live in the world of PhDs who depend on them. But there's no revival coming from our Christian schools. Maybe it's because we depend on our degrees. You can get knowledge. Knowledge is just the accumulation of facts. Only God gives wisdom. And when my life has fallen apart, when the banks are calling or where the family doesn't pay attention, nobody's listening, I don't need more knowledge. I need a touch. I need wisdom. To get that, you've got to go where you haven't gone in a long time. Go where you haven't been. Do what you haven't done. And finally, it demands that you share what no one else can share. You've got something nobody else has. It's your story. And the fact that you survived, whatever it is you survived, is peace to the person who's here, and the tunnel looks dark. And when they feel hopeless, you're there to tell them, you can survive. He got me through it. Let me show you something. Do you know what he got for returning to the feet of Jesus? Do you know what he received because he worshiped? Three words are used for what was done to this man. In verse 14, in verse 14 it says, and as they were going, what? Yeah, they were cleansed. Catharizo, catharsis. All of them were cleansed. But please note, when he saw that he was healed, Hilamai. Healed means the disease is gone. It's not just that it's not infected anymore. The disease is gone. But when he got on his face before Jesus, Jesus says, Stand up and go. Your faith has made you well. Verse 19. Sudzo. Never to be the same again. I got scars from what I've been through. So do you. You survived it. You got through it. And you're not the same. We don't need more wisdom from men. We don't need the machinations of men. And by the way, I don't need a we. I need revival to start with me. And I can't depend on you. And you can't depend on me. The people who see God do the most radical things in their life are the very people who have not forgotten what it was like to be diseased and beat up and broken and hurt. Pain will make you stronger. Fear will make you braver. Heartache makes you wiser. I don't know what you've been through, but you survived it. You got a story to tell, to do it loudly. Because at his feet, you got what the world can't offer. Peace, purpose, hope, healing. We don't need fancier people. We need lepers who will get at his feet. My story happens to be Islam. It's no better and no worse than yours. They need both of us telling our story. Thanks for listening to a leper.